Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 136 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Larry Berman. Larry is a professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis. He has published four books dealing with the history of America's involvement in the Vietnam War. His work has also been featured on C-SPAN, the History Channel, and Vietnam, a television history. I invited Larry onto the podcast to discuss his book, Perfect Spy, The Incredible Double Life of Pham Shun An, Time Magazine reporter and Vietnamese communist agent. It's the story of a spy in South Vietnam who went undiscovered for 20 years, even as he worked his way into the highest levels of the South Vietnamese government, the international media, and the U.S. Military Assistance Command. An was a solo agent who gained the trust of everyone who knew him and used that trust to deliver priceless information to the North Vietnamese time and time again. But before we get into this story, I want to ask you something. Are you ready to learn the skills and techniques used by spies and covert operatives worldwide? Are you ready to move from the historical to the practical? If so, Cloaked Entry Company is here to teach you how to get in and out without leaving a trace. Cloaked Entry Company's course combine classroom study and practice with real-world nighttime exercises and covert entry techniques. Each student will receive their own toolkit to include picks, a leather case, multi-pass, shims, and more which is yours to keep after the class ends. Their February course has already sold out, but Cloaked Entry Company has upcoming events in Wilmington, North Carolina in March and April 2024, and in Cochrane, Georgia in May 2024. Grab a seat while you still can, and make sure to use the code SPYCRAFT101 to save $50 off any upcoming Covert Entry 101 courses. Find more information by clicking on the link in the show notes of this episode to visit cloakedentryco.com and make sure to follow them on Instagram as well, at Cloaked Entry Co. Larry, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and I wish I could take that course. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. I love being able to support people who are in uh, such a similar niche to my own, honestly. Yeah. So I haven't had many chances here on the podcast to discuss the Vietnam War, but every time that I do in the past, my listeners have asked for more. And I think this is honestly probably the most incredible story of espionage to come out of that conflict, in my opinion. So I'm glad that they'll be able to hear it right from you. Well, I'm delighted to tell it. So let's get started. <laughs> of course. So first of all, what was it that led you to research this book and make this your next book, I should say, after the ones you'd written previously? Yeah. So the story of this is actually one of just serendipity. I had not planned on writing this book at all. I was finishing a book that eventually became No Peace, No Honor, Nixon, Kissinger, and Betrayal in Vietnam, which was the, the, the story, and the book is still in print, story of the Paris peace negotiations that ended the war, and particularly the secret negotiations between Henry Kissinger and Le Doc Tho in Paris. And I was writing that book when I had the chance to go to Vietnam in the summer of, of 2000, the year 2000. And 
again, I was just thinking about that book. I took two weeks off. I was on, it was a group of about seven professors who were going to go Vietnam to Vietnam and see the country that we had been writing about. I had not been in the war and I had not been to Vietnam previously. The first night there, and this is where the serendipity really kicks in, we, the, the person who was organizing this trip, uh, Dr. James Reckner from Texas Tech University, uh, organized a welcome dinner for us, and he had brought along about uh, seven or eight Vietnamese to have dinner with us. And we were in a local restaurant, and I tell this story in the beginning of the book, and we were all sitting at a very long horizontal table, and I didn't speak Vietnamese, and none of the people I was sitting next to spoke English very well. And there was only one empty seat, and it was the one directly across from me. And in walks Pham Soon An, who I didn't know, didn't even, had never really heard of. I mean, I had heard about a spy, and he took the seat directly opposite me. And the rest is history, but I wouldn't write the book for five more years because it took so long for me to convince him, I'm sure we'll get into this, to allow me to tell the story. So the first time I met Pham Soon An was at this dinner on my first night in Vietnam. And we, he, he didn't stop talking for over three hours. Four, I don't think he took a bite of food. But all he did was talk about the time that he had spent in California, how much he loved California. He talked because I was a professor from the University of California, Davis. He knew Davis very well. He knew Eleanor McClatchy, who was the publisher of the Sacramento Bee. I mean, matter of fact, he, he had spent time at her summer home. He seemed to know everybody. He spoke about his, his life with Time Magazine for Reuters. And he started naming people who were legends to me, people like David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan and others. And hmm. he just seemed to know everybody. And he just regaled me with these stories, but never once told me about his role during the war. It wasn't until after, oh, and he gave me his card. He asked me what I was working on finally. And I told him I was finishing his book on secret negotiations. And he said to me, I know a lot about that. Why don't you come and interview me tomorrow? And I'll give you some information that you, know, you might not have from usual sources. And I took his card, which I still carry in my wallet to this day. Hmm. And as we were leaving, we got outside. I said goodbye to him. Wasn't sure I would really see him or how sincere he was. There's a whole backstory to that, which I, I, I won't go into here. And I asked someone, who was this guy? I mean, literally, it's like the Butch Cassidy scene. Who are those guys? I had, you know, I had, I really didn't know who he was. It just, he was a delightful, engaging, witty, charming person who smoked a cigarette after cigarette and had story after story. And my friend Conley told me who he was, that during the war, he had been the master spy who had worked for Time Magazine, had contributed, you know, intelligence reports that led to the defeat of the Americans, and that how lucky I was to have sat had dinner with him. <laughs> and so let, let's be certain that I did know what to do the next day, which is to contact him. And that started our relationship. Yeah, that is amazing. Serendipity is definitely the right word for that. Larry, you, you touched on something that I know we'll probably discuss it more in depth a little bit later on, but he's such an incredible guy to me because as you said, he did enormous damage to our interests and our objectives in Vietnam, but he also loved America and he loved Americans as well. And, you know, there wasn't like a, there's a very odd conflict of interest there, I think, which is really worth exploring. Well, you know, there's a, that's the duality of his life, the ambiguity of his life. And your listeners might be interested to know, you know, I have successfully optioned this book and it is being made into a mo major motion picture. I'm really? very excited about this. And the character development of how do you tell 
a story about someone like An, which is this enigma of 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 what what are what, what are the tensions, the arc of a story about someone who lives such a complex, extraordinarily complex uh, life undercover, became his cover in so many ways, but at the same time loved Americans and. I mean, I have an answer. I, I look forward to talking talking about this with you because I do think the answer has a lot to do with his time in the United States mm-hmm. and and the time that he has spent here, and also when he was here in the United States in 1957 to 59, before the American War, before all of the death and destruction that would occur. And as An always told me, when he was sent on his mission to the United States, he could never imagine in 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 a hundred years that one day. 550,000 American troops would be committed to Vietnam, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths on both sides, 55 to 60,000 American deaths, mm-hmm. record, 55 plus on the, on the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., defoliating jungles, the use of chemical weapons, B-52s, and we're living with the legacy of even that today, that is the, the, the chemical weapons. All of this was beyond anything that An ever thought he was signing up up for when he went to the United States in 57. Mm-hmm. So, and yes, he loved America. He loved everything America stood for. Again, that is the tension in his life, the tension between loyalty to his country, his mission, and loyalty to his friends and to his own self-objectives. And at almost every point in his life, he chose loyalty to his mission because that's who, that, it was his country. And mm-hmm. and we were the we were the we were the occupiers we were the invaders, uh, and even to this day I think history would say, you know what was it all for? And we can again I know I don't want to jump too far ahead, uh, try to stay on this chronologically, but uh, and that's why An was so reluctant to tell me his story. You know he had been offered David Halberstam and Stanley Carnow, two Pulitzer Prize winning American journalists. I mean Halberstam's book The Best and the Brightest and Carnow's Vietnam to this day remain, you know, amongst the very top books on, on on the subject. They had negotiated with, I think it was Doubleday, with Doubleday at that time over a half million dollar contract to write On's biography. Oh, wow. And On said no. On said no because at that time, again, this is about fifteen years before my time. On felt that if he talked about the things he knew and didn't know many people's lives would be endangered and 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 vietnam wasn't even ready to allow him to to speak on that and it took me five years to convince him and it was only when he was dying and he was facing his own mortality that he agreed to allow me to write the book he thought he only had six months to live but he had two and a half years and i took the most of that yeah, that's an incredible opportunity, and I'm glad that you were able to take advantage of that opportunity. It really benefits all of us to learn about what happened there and, and his role in it. So, Larry, let's go back chronologically, like you mentioned, then to his early life. Of what was it like for him growing up, and what brought him to the United States in the first place? Yeah, so again, he was born on September 12, 1927, just to, just, just to put a marker there, in Benoit uh, in Vietnam, which is very close to Saigon, which has now been renamed Ho Chi Minh City. It's about 20 miles from Saigon. And he used to joke about that because he was born in a, there was only one French doctor. This is a time of French colonialism, right? The French had colonized this whole area. And this is how An grew up in, in, under the, the, under the, the, the constraints and the, the reality of what colonialism really was for the Vietnamese people. And 
he he was born in a in a psychiatric hospital, which he used to like to say it was typical that he that a spy would be born in a psychiatric hospital with this kind of mission. <laughs> But the other thing is, is that it was the only hospital, the only hospital within a 20 mile radius that accepted Viet, Viet, Vietnamese. So all the others, you know, served the French, you know, and it was very interesting growing up. Um, his father was a, a ranking engineer, a surveyor in the French uh, public administration department. And his job was to travel around throughout southern Vietnam and do surveys. And, and he took Young on with him. And one of the things I learned was how poor the country was and how lucky, as his father always told him, how lucky he was not to be that poor and to have a, a way to, to survive with by eating and food and things like that. These people had very little and colonialism, colonialism had robbed them of, of so much, the yoke of what the French were doing to the Viet, Vietnamese. So he traveled all around, but he was a terrible student. I think he failed two grades. He really didn't do well. He did very poorly in French colonial schools, but he had two gifts. One was a gift for language. He just took on, he just could, he just picked up languages uh, so quickly. And the other was math, which again, when we talk about his role as a spy, I've learned a lot about how mathematicians think and compartmentalize. And I think these two things, language and math, really interesting, at least in his life, or how it would affect his mission. And, you know, very early as a teenager, he joined the Viet Minh, and the Viet Minh, again, for those listeners who may not know, these were the these were the insurgent forces that were fighting the Japanese and the French. And you know, the Viet Minh worked very closely. Ho Chi Minh worked very closely with the American OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. We had a common enemy in Japan at the time. Uh, we helped defeat Japan. Mm -hmm. This was a time when when Viet Minh really hoped the United States and Franklin Roosevelt would embrace Vietnam, they had embraced the Philippines and the like, but that was not that was not to happen as we know. But An worked as a student organizer. Uh, he organized anti-French street demonstrations. He carried banners, I have pictures of him doing things like that. And at that time, he came to the attention of Viet Minh leaders because he was so sharp and so bright uh, and so facile with language and he spoke English. He had learned English from British missionaries and he, he and almost no one else could speak any English. And they decided that this was a guy who we needed to shape into uh, an intelligence agent and uh, that he should become a spy. And so he, now again, this is four years before he would ever be sent to the United States. First, he has to go to South to Southern Vietnam, all the way to Tip, place known as Cao Mao Peninsula and get sworn in to the communist party. So he joined the party. That someone might want to know that he, you know, he he does join the party. He it, it was required, and he was joining the party as a Vietnamese Vietnam patriot. You, he couldn't have passed a test on what communism was, he, hmm. or what Stalin was, or Marxism, or anything like that. The, he was a patriot. That's why a Vietnamese revolutionary fighting against the Japanese and then the French occupiers. He was sworn in to the party by Le Duc Tho of all people, and he was a party member went to work in various places. He first, he, you know, they sent him to a place called Tal Caltech Gas, and then he became a customs inspector. And this was all to sort of get him to learn how to interact with people, how to interact with the French, how to interact with folks. Uh, and then the French are defeated at the MBM Fu in 1954. And this is really critical because after the French defeat, the Viet Minh had every reason to think that finally no more occupiers now we can determine our own future, just ourselves. Lo and behold, 
you know, the precursor to the American CIA, the OSS, shows up. And Americans start showing up and they start propping up this guy by the name of ZM and they create the Bank of Vietnam. And there are the Americans. And the Viet Minh had no idea, Le Docteur Ho Chi Minh, they had no idea who the Americans were really, you know, but they knew that the Americans were going to replace the French. And they needed to find out who they were. And the commit, the decision was made about 1955, about a year after the defeat of, of, of the French, that they would send on to the United States. And his job would be, uh, it wasn't, he, he was supposed to come to the States for six years. And his mission would be to learn about the psyche of the American people. Who are the Americans? What, mm. How do they think? What do they want? Sort of like Alexander de Tocqueville, who came here, the Frenchman who came to the United States and wrote the great book on democracy, which is a classic until today and talked about America. Well, Ahn was really supposed to, to do that. But something really interesting happens in Vietnam. You know, you can't just, if you're an 18-year-old or a 19 or 20-year-old young person, you just can't, it's not like today, you know, you want to go to the United States, you know, it's an application process, you study, you know, the whole thing. Ahn had to get sponsored. And so who's going to sponsor Pham Sunan, right? So they, the Viet Minh figure out a way to get on into the Arvin, the, the, the Vietnamese army, the army of the Republic of Vietnam, G5 staff. It's a general staff uh, and it's for psychological warfare. And on has already got a cover. He's, you know, he's working there he speaks English and he's, he actually helped to create the first Arvin light infantry division, right? Which would eventually fight Americans. But here's the key. He meets for the first time, Edward Lansdale, who is in Saigon at the time. Lansdale is one of the most interesting historical figures. He's an LA advertising executive. He worked for the office, the OSS in World War II. He was most famous for helping post-war government of the Philippines defeat the communist insurgency there. And then he was recruited by the CIA again to go to Vietnam and defeat the Viet Minh insurgency. And who's the first person that he meets and really thinks can help him defeat the Viet Minh insurgency? It's Pham Soon An, who is himself a member of the, of the Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Lansdale's a, 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 he's head of the Saigon military mission, and he decides that he's gonna sponsor An to go study in the United States. My gosh. He, and he recruits An. He contacted personally the Asia Foundation. I, I went to the part of my the book I went to the Stanford Library, Hoover Institution archive at, this, at Stanford University where Lansdale's papers are. And I found these letters where Lansdale is writing the Asia Foundation, which had been created by the CIA. I mean, that's, that we all know that, to send him, to send on to the United States. And Lansdale and the CIA covered all of Ahn's costs, everything. So now you have oh, this situation Lord. set up. <laughs> the situation is now set up where you got the first Viet Minh plant in Arvin is recruited by Lansdale of the CIA to go to the United States under a cover of, of, of a CIA sponsorship at the Asia, thanks to the Asia Foundation. And he's sent to California to study journalism. And they picked journalism because it really was the safest of uh, most, they didn't want uh, nothing, anything to happen to him. And he ends up in Orange Coast. He prepares for two years for this mission, works on things, and he goes to Orange Coast College for two years. He arrives there, and it's there that his life, all the bells, all the whistles, everything opens up to him. He sees, uh, he takes journalism very seriously. 
He works for the Barnacle, the student newspaper. Uh, I interviewed every one of his surviving uh, college roommates. To this day, they, they love him. They thought, the, they thought he was one of the most interesting and engaging people. They couldn't believe that he eventually turned out to be a spy. It didn't seem to bother anybody. And he was a novelty. He was the first Vietnamese American in Orange County, which is today the largest conglomeration of Vietnamese Americans in the country. Oh, wow. But uh, at, at the time, he was the first. And he was a communist agent. I and mean, of course, no one, no one knew that. <laughs> he wrote co a weekly column in the uh, Barnacle. He, he, he loved uh, the interactions. He, and it, because he, no one really knew a Vietnamese, uh, and he picked up this nickname Confucius, which is what they <laughs> called him. But it was a commuter college. But every week, he, someone else wanted to take him home to their parents and spend the weekend with him because he was so interesting and he knew how to cook dishes that no one else cooked. He sailed off of Newport Beach. He fell in love, had a girlfriend that he really cared about a lot, hoped that he could marry her and bring her back to Vietnam. He made lifelong friends. The college yearbook has you know, so many moving things written about him, and inscriptions by people in his college yearbook. And the most important thing about his time in America was he learned what a free press was. He learned what freedom was. He learned what free expression of ideas was. There wasn't just one answer to one question as it was in the communist government or the socialist government that he would eventually live under and even for the Viet, Viet men. And he fell in love with American journalism. He really did. His dream was that after the war, Vietnam would adopt this kind of sort of progressive uh, idea of a free press, what a free press could do for a society. He wrote about this. He wrote about it during his time in Orange Coast, but he also wrote about it later in his life, life too, about how America opened up his mind, a way of thinking to things that he had never appreciated. And all of this is before the American War. So again, your listeners, as I'm speaking, they must be thinking he's painting such an idealistic view of the guy. Well, the fact is, is that I mean, this is 1958, 1959. There was no American war yet. Even Ahn could never have imagined what would happen. Right, right. So his view was there might be some small skirmish, but how could the Americans ever commit this thing to so many forces just to something so small as, as Vietnam? Mm -hmm. Surely that was not in their self-interest. So it was a very formidable time, but in back in Vietnam, there's a big crackdown. Oh, so then on, by the way, drives, at, after he graduates, he bought a car, had a California driver's license, and he drove across America all by himself. And the most interesting part about that was every night he was taking, he met people, they took him in. He, he never met a harsh word. No one ever, he didn't face any discrimination or anything. He was, and he really fell in love with our country. He fell in love with the people he met. And then he got to the United, to New York. He, he interned in the United Nations. And he was offered a job at the Asia Foundation. He could have stayed, but he received a secret coded message that asked him to come home because there was a crackdown going and they needed him, uh, a very mm -hmm. big crackdown against the Viet Minh. And he had, this was a, a critical decision in his life. He could have stayed. He could have uh, become a U.S. citizen. He could have worked for the Asia Foundation. He could have made a lot of money. Instead, he said goodbye to it all, and he put loyalty to his mission, loyalty to his country first. And he returned to Vietnam in 1959, where he began his undercover career working first for Vietnam Press, but then for the New York Herald Tribune. And eventually he would get his big spot, which was with Time Magazine, where he was for at least five years. Right, because he was also, in addition to everything else, he was a, a very accomplished journalist. 
over the years. Um, he learned a lot. So do you think that he, or did he like waver in any way from his mission? Was he any less dedicated to the Viet Minh cause or the communist cause in that way after so much time in the United States? No, no. He just always believed that the primacy of his mission, that mm-hmm. is, that the, what was that mission? I mean, what was the primacy of what he was fighting for? He just wanted the Americans to go home. That was it. That the future of Vietnam should be determined by the Vietnamese, not by the Japanese, not by the French, not by the Americans. And so this is this is Vietnamese nationalism. I mean, this is patriotism. And I always give my students the example of what would happen if we were invaded by a foreign foe. I mean, would be the, my answer would be the same as as well, which is you know we'd we'd fight you know we'd fight for our country. That's what on on did. And of course, I know later we'll probably get to what happened to him after the war, <laughs> yeah. because he paid a price for this stuff, some of his views. It wasn't like this was cost-free to him. It, it was a big price that he would pay, but it was his mission. And that was the other thing. You know, he's a journalist, right? So a very successful journalist. He was the most, he was the guy that every new American reporter came to when they arrived in Vietnam to learn about, about South Vietnam because he knew so much. And he, had, he in order to succeed in his job, he had to become his cover. He had to live his cover. And so he became really good at what he did. And his job was, as a reporter, was to gather these facts and then write these stories. After the war, accuracy of media and a lot of groups, when they found out that he all the time had been a communist agent, they went back and read everything. I mean, thousands of dollars were spent on this. And they could find no example, not a single example of any story that on had ever tilted to the communist perspective. Hmm. And the reason for that was because if he had tried that even once, he would be like most of the other spies during the war, he'd be dead. Because on is only one of two or three significant spies, certainly the most famous, the most heralded, and the most influential, who lasted for the entire war and wasn't caught. And I mean, this is a testament to how he adopted to his cover, how seriously he took journalism, how they relied on him. And of course, the other thing is, is that it wasn't just the Americans that he fooled. So he was working, the work environment that he was in, he worked with the Americans, but every day he interacted with the South Vietnamese, the highest echelon of the South Vietnamese. And no one ever suspected hmm. the, the president of, of South Vietnam, President Nguyen Van Tu, was a very well-known dog trainer. He trained their dogs. He fooled everybody, the Vietnamese, the Americans, the CIA, the Vietnamese CIO, which is their central intelligence organization. No one had any idea that his, who he was and what he was doing for the, the entire duration of the war. So this is, I think, an indication of his, of his extraordinary effective, effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Yeah, call him the perfect spy for a reason. That's certainly well justified, I think. So, Larry, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. We've we've talked about his capabilities, of course, and his cover. But what was he actually tasked to provide along all this time? Was he was it geopolitical stuff? I mean, was it you know troop buildup, anything like that? Yeah. So I never stole. This is a great question. I'm glad you asked it. So I never had to steal a document. Never, never once. And in my book, I, I think I explained that, you know, An kept a lot of these documents. And as I was writing the book, he would take them out and he would show them to me and, and the like. He was, given the, he was given these documents by the Americans. These are strategic assessments of, of troop strength, political undercurrents underway in the United States, American public opinion towards the war. 
but most important were things like the order of battle, military movements, and like. And he was also given these documents by the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese ARVIN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, the Central Intelligence Organization, because they would go to Odd and they would say, look, we've got this document, but you understand the Americans best of all. And the Americans would come to him and say, look, we've got these documents. You understand the Vietnamese best of oh, all. Man. So he had all of these documents. <laughs> but, and, and his job was, it's interesting, you know, his job was to distill them and then come up with a theme and then, and, you know, then through a very intricate procedure that we can, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, transmit these documents to, to Hanoi. And again, Vietnam had no school for spies. They had nothing at the time. So An learned to be a spy by reading a book on spycraft. That way you could get out of the library when he was in the United States. Got, he got one book. It was given to him by David Halberstam. And just as because it, it was also helping be a, a reporter, and in many ways, being a good reporter and being a good spy are are very much very closely aligned in terms of, of the things you have to do to go dig into a story and the like. And he just adopted all of this as as he went. There was no training, no real ground, but he was a master at interpersonal relations. And and here he was a singleton, and he had every day. It wasn't like he could pick up a phone or, or use a Morse code or anything like that to communicate with anyone. And for all the medals that he would win during the war, he never knew it until after the war, right? Because he's living alone in Saigon, mm -hmm. he and his wife and, and their young family, and his only access to what's really going on. He doesn't even know how well his reports are being accepted. He thinks they're being accepted because they're asking for more through his courier, but he's living this solitary life. He's in the spy craft that's known as a singleton a single strategically placed agent. Uh, and in An's case, it came with incredible, incredible risks. So, you know, he'd write stories on the American build. He would write reports up to Hanoi about the American buildup. He did one on count. The most important one early was he helped to still in 1960, 1961 and 62, the American strategy of counterinsurgency, which was the new American way of fighting the war and the first place that after he provided the, the information, the Viet Minh, or by now the, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese decided to to test it was in a place called Apoc in January of 1963. And it was a stunning victory for the Vietnamese and uh, a rather humiliating defeat for Arvin and for the United States. As many of the helicopters were down and later on would learn that he received his first medal, the really exploit medal, the highest one you could get for the reports that he had provided on, on APAC. And again, all those came from documents that the, were given to him by the Americans and, and the Vietnamese. And later he would get a, a second exploit medal for explaining in, in July of 1965, the Americans were coming full force. That is, this was, they were taking over the war. They were Americanizing the war. Another very influential report had to do with the Tet Offensive. Uh, it played a major role in the Viet Vietnamese understanding uh, what was happening during the Tet Offensive. And his astuteness there was, it was the closest he came to getting caught actually, because he was reporting on the Tet Offensive for Time Magazine. And he was taking the leading correspondents around, showing them how after Tet, how the North Vietnamese had infiltrated but he was the guy who had created so many of the infiltration <laughs> points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and oh, and then later his reports really led to the speedy, the speedy end to the war in April, 1975, because Vietnam had not expected 
to end the war until 1976 when there was a new presidential administration, but on said there was no reason to, to, to wait. So that's how he did it. Those are some of the subjects that he wrote about. Most of his reports are still locked up in Hanoi. I didn't get to see 90% of them. I don't think they'll be released for another hundred years. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're like the crown jewels of the Vietnamese. They're in some military spy archive now, and no one, no one can get to see them. But these are the ones that, that I was able to get, get to. And the way he would do it is he would read all this stuff. He would analyze it. Then at night with his wife standing guard and his beloved German shepherd also standing guard, he would write these reports in invisible ink and he would wrap them. First, then he would put them into microfilm and then he would put them into, into traditional Vietnamese rolls, rolls. And then the next day, and every month there was a day that he would meet his courier. His courier's name was uh, Miss Win T. Ba. Never in the history of spying have there been such a team like this. Totally just amazing how effective they were. And they were so different in almost every way. She was illiterate. At that time, she didn't read. I spent hours with her. It was really fascinating to learn how they did it. And they would go to a very busy place, like a bird market or somewhere. They would have this discussion. He would just say, oh, a nice day today. Or do you know something about this bird? And then she said, you look hungry. And they would have this exchange where he gave her some of these roles, but inside those roles were the reports. She would take them. She was a very elderly woman. She chewed betel nuts and she had she was missing her teeth. And the ones that were that she had were black from these betel nuts. She's the most nondescript person you would ever think might be the top courier, who was also later promoted to a high rank and made a hero of the revolution. And she she would then travel about 20 miles to a place, a designated place, where eventually they, she would give them to someone else. They went to Coochie, and eventually from Coochie, which was the sort of the the, the main central underground tunnel tunnels for the Vietnamese, they would be eventually transmitted up to to Kazvin and then to Hanoi. It was a long process. He was protected by started by 55 agents known in the 864 group. 29 of them were killed protecting on during the war. Wow. I had the opportunity to meet with many of them as well. Even I was just in Vietnam last month and I had I had dinner with An's boss, the guy who ran on in Vietnam and not bad for 98 years old, still, <laughs> yeah. right, still, still doing well. So it's really, a, it's an extraordinary story about how that all happened. Before we go on, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. 
yeah, it's it's so amazing to me that he was really present and involved for just the entire arc of that war in a way that, you know, most of us can hardly imagine. I mean, people, you know, grew up, you know, with the Vietnam War on television every night. They were young men, young women by the time it was over with. And he was in the thick of it that entire time, having a deep, you know, profound impact on the way that the war was fought and won and never caught, never even super very close to being caught. It's just incredible. And, you know, the closest he came to being caught was to save the lives of Americans. So he saved a lot. I have a whole chapter in the book. I know you've read it about Bob Anson, Robert Sam Anson, Bob Anson. And he risked everything. Anson had been captured by the North Vietnamese. He was facing certain death. They thought he was CIA. He wasn't military. And when An found out that he had been captured, he risked everything. And he, he, it just so happened that he was supposed to meet his courier the next day, Win T. Ba. And he, he provided a lot of information about Anson. Anson worked for Time Magazine. And he had saved the life of, of Vietnamese children in a place called Takeo in, 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 Viet, in Vietnam. And uh, in Laos, An thought his heart was really in a good place. And An wrote this report. And about five weeks later, four weeks later, news came that Anson had been released. That was the closest An came. Because if, if anyone had ever found that report, there's no way that they wouldn't have been able to trace that to An. But he did that because of the value that he put on friendships and loyalty. Anson is the best example of that. Yeah, that was so fascinating to me. And it really speaks to just the, the duality of this guy and the way that he would risk himself to save an American while transmitting reports that led to the deaths of many and the complete failure of our, our overall you know objective and strategy in the war. But he still cared for the individuals. Well, right. And again, you know, I'm sure some people who are listening will say he killed Americans. Yeah, he was responsible for the deaths of lots of Americans. That is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, An didn't like to hear that uh, because he loved Americans, but his reports did contribute to the death of many Americans. But again, you know, what were the Americans doing in Vietnam? You know, all An wanted them to do was to leave. And when they left, in his idealistic view, I mean, this because again, this he spent the whole war in Saigon. He didn't know anything about the North Vietnamese. Literally, he had never been to North Vietnam. Hmm. He was a Southerner. He thought once the war was over, there would be this kumbaya moment and they would come to him and, and they, the North Vietnamese would say, okay, what did you learn from the Americans? That's why we sent you there. What is this free press? You know, I mean, all this. Hmm. And of course, you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but that didn't happen. So he was very naive in, in that way. And he paid a big price, you know, a big price. Yeah, that's that's really incredible way that his story kind of draws to a unexpected end in some ways, I suppose. But you said that he was never caught. Did the Americans or South Vietnamese, did they ever have any indication like there was one mole above all the others? There was one person that was, you know, this unseen hand that was kind of guiding the North to these intelligence coups? Or did they just have, were they, you know, still oblivious to the presence of this guy in their midst? During the war, no one suspected Pham Sudan. Mm-hmm. After the war, after he came out, two or three people said, oh, I always suspected. Mm. But, you know, I thought, you know, they're just, I mean, I, that's easy to say after the war, right, right. right? So, but no, no one, you know, and again, this is an important point that I always like to, to make, that the story of Pham Sun An is, there's nothing really quite like him, right? So that, you know, during the war, no one knew about his secret life at all. He was only known as that a brilliant contributor of Time Magazine for the coverage of the war, he was a first-class journalist, people always said that, who had went to college in the United States. He had worked for Reuters, New York Tribune, Herald Tribune. He smoked, he laughed, he engaged, he raised German shepherds, he did all this stuff. But no one knew about that secret life of 
invisible ink, microfilm, you know, couriers, mail drops, tunnels, intelligence mm -hmm. reports. And they also didn't know that he had a rank of colonel in the, at the time. They didn't know anything, right? So the answer is no, he was the perfect spy. Amazing. And, and why? How, how, why did I use the term perfect spy? It's because the more I studied on and the more I, I got to know him, and also the more I thought about it, he realized that he had to become his cover. And this is really the essence. You know, my book is read at, at the CIA now for agents who are, who are being trained on these singleton missions, oh, right? And one of the things I learned when I spoke there is that, and this is many, many, many years ago, that for people like, for people like on, I mean, you're on your own. There's, there's no one, no one's coming, coming for you. So you must become your cover. You must become the person that you are pretending to be. The problem is eventually that role ends. And this, I leave this for the psychiatrist listening or the counselors listening. And then one day, all of a sudden it's all over. And who are you? Are you that, how difficult it must be, as you just said, to have been in that war for so long in this mask, wearing this mask, what was true, what wasn't true. And then one day the war is over and they tell you, okay, you can be your old self now. You know, you know what was that old yeah. self? I didn't yeah. even remember. Un didn't even know. He didn't know. I mean, that's the truth. Mm -hmm. yeah. Incredible. Incredible stuff. So, of course, you know, the war eventually comes to an end. I know the U.S. mostly pulled out by like 1973 and 75 is when Saigon was finally taken. So what happened in those last days? I mean, An was in Saigon when it fell, wasn't he? I mean, what was happening there for him? He was guarding Time magazine. So this is an under oh, interesting wow. story. I mean... So, so the Vietnamese, so it, it's, go, let's go to April, you know, d uh, dark April of, of 1970. Uh, let's go to, sorry, not, I'm jumping ahead. Let's just go to, yeah, let's go to a April of 1975. So South Vietnam is falling, right? The North Vietnamese are crashing down the presidential palace, et cetera. So a week, a week before, almost all of the Vietnamese who worked for Time magazine, for, for not just Time, for the New York Times, for Newsweek, for the, for the Herald Tribune, they were all evacuated because it, once the invading army got there, they, they would be known and they would be identified as South Vietnamese working for the Americans. They were gonna go to prison or be killed. That, mm -hmm. that, there was no doubt about that. So An evacuated his entire family, his wife and four children. Now don't forget his wife has been a partner of his, knows that he's a spy. He evacuate, evacuates them, but An, says he has to stay behind. He will not leave his mother, his ailing mother. And so he stayed with his mother. He stayed in, in the Continental Hotel in Bob Chaplin's room, who was the, the New Yorker Far East correspondent. It's the room that I stay in on every, I, you know, I've been to Vietnam about 60 times. And hmm. I, and it, it, that room is dedicated to Pham Son An right now. So oh, wow. you can go in, there's, there's pictures of An in the, in the room and, and on the plaque on the door and a statue and the like. An stays behind because he has to be in Time Magazine. And he is going to be Time Magazine's man in Vietnam, even after North Vietnamese arrive. But then he realizes that the, the, the winning victorious army won't know who he is. They're going to think that he just was, you know, this guy who worked for Time. And he, as he said, they would kill his dogs, eat them, and then kill him, right? And mm -hmm. so he hid. And then he shows up at Time, and he, he tells people, but no one really believe, believes him at all. But he's sort of put in some sort of detention. And about four days later, 
reports come in and some colonel comes over to him and says, okay, you know, you're on this, our side. So he was, he was okay. And so he ended up on the winning side like that. But, you know, then he made the fatal mistake. You know, they bring him in. That's because they bring him in to talk to him. Also, I, I moved a little too quickly. In the final days of the war, the head of the Viet, the leading, the leading anti-communist in South Vietnam was a man by the name of Dr. Twin, T-U-Y-E-N, Dr. Twin. Mm -hmm. And he was the number one person on the Vietnamese list to get the, the winning side. They wanted him. They, they would have just tortured him, get all the secrets and everything. And An and him were really good friends. He had given An his first job when he returned from the United States. An and him, An really loved him. They loved each other. And An helped Dr. Twin escape on the last helicopter of April 1975. And he did that because he knew what would happen to Dr. Twin. And the North Vietnam and Dr. Twin escaped. As a matter of fact, the movie is, this is a really powerful scene, as An says goodbye to Twin, but also knows both men know what's going to happen to each one of them. I mean, Twin's going to freedom, he is, but mm -hmm. An's going to get in trouble for this. Mm -hmm. And so the victorious army comes in and they bring him into, the, you know, four days later, five days later, he goes into interrogation and they ask him about Dr. Twin. He said he saved him because they were friends. You know, he played innocent. And then An starts speaking about how great the Americans are, that he's worked, he's lived in, with the Americans so long, now they're gone. Let's give it like a month or two or three but I'd like to teach journalism here and things like that. And they just listened to him like he was a crazy man. Oh, man. And so he was sent to, he was sent to political re-education for 14 months. He was sent to Hanoi. He, as he said, he was made to read all of the great economic theories of Marxism and the like, but it was too late because he had been exposed to American thinking. And so they joked, they called him an American boy and they treated him very harshly in, in Hanoi. And they sent him back and he was put under house arrest for eight years not allowed any contact with anyone from the outside, no no friends, nothing. So he spent his days secretly listening to B BBC radio, educating his children, which, you know, he ended up sending one of his children to study in the United States, which is oh. interesting. It's mm -hmm. I discussed that in the book. And it wasn't until the opening of Vietnam, known as economic renovation, occurred, and Vietnam started letting Americans in, that all these people came back. And who was one of the first people who wanted to see on? But William Colby, the, the, the former CIA director, who was the station ship chief in Vietnam, went on, was there. Oh, and no. he and Colby were good friends. So Colby was probably one of On's sources. On would not talk to me about Colby. So I'm sure that he just said it was too, it was too sensitive. But so here's Colby, the, station, the CIA station chief in Vietnam, and he and On are close friends. And so uh, Vietnam opens up in the early... In, in, in the early 1990s, who's the first, or late 1980s, who's the first person back? It's Colby, and he wants to see on. And then all the journalists, Halberstam, she, and everyone came back, and everyone wanted to see him. It was one of some of the happiest moments of his life, and he really enjoyed that. Incredible reunion with the, the new perspective that they've all gained in the ensuing years, yeah. or the, the previous years. That's unbelievable. They must see everything in a different light, but that relationship was still strong if they wanted to see each other. Man. Mind-boggling. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely, and and all of them forgave him. That's the thing. Again, again, and it's not my job to defend on here. And I, I, but it is not one of those reporters who came back, and it's all discussed in my book. And and not a single one of them were angry about it. They actually looked at it and they said, you know, first of all, that they 
if they were in his shoes, they probably would have done the same thing, although probably not as successfully, but that it was his country that was invaded. You know, and in retrospect, I mean, it's hard not to be sad about what happened in the Vietnam War, how what a waste it really was in lives of not only Americans, but Vietnamese, Southern and Northern. And and the legacy of that war still in poisoned soils of chemicals. And our poor soldiers who were there came back and had children who's there. Those children are living with the legacy of Agent Orange. Right. All of this to try to get, and we weren't, there was no declaration of war. It was all just a deception to bring us in because we were so afraid of Russia, uh, the Soviet Union at the time, and China. But was it worth 550,000 American troops to be, uh, by 1968, to be Lyndon Johnson hounded from office? And by 1973, that the Paris Accords? Uh, I hardly think so. And neither do these reporters. Right, right. It's it's really hard to argue any other way at this point now that we know the outcome of that war. And, you know, plenty of people could see that coming on the horizon, I think, while it was going on, of course. So, Larry, yeah. how did he feel after all of this? I mean, you got to know him towards the end of his life. He had this perspective. He saw what happened once the North actually took over, once the country was unified under the Communist Party. So how did he, he feel about what he did? Was he regretful? Was he resigned? To it? I mean, was he oh. just happy that the Vietnamese were making the decisions now? Oh, what a great question. And so complex. I mean, almost as complex as his life. No, I mean, An said some things that got him in even more trouble. He said, for example, <laughs> publicly, and it was printed and it was reprinted. He said, if I had known I was trading the, the Soviets for the Americans, I would have stayed with the Americans. Oh. Meaning that the Soviets had come in. Of course, that was, that was the only out. I mean, Vietnam, right after the went to war with China. So who was Vietnam's ally? It was the Soviet Union. I mean, basically, Soviet Union at that time was the direct beneficiary of Cameron Bay and all these other military installations and everything. And because they were Vietnam's main ally, and you know, Vietnam was about, it was at war with China. And their economic model was one of, of failure, right? Failure. And so An said that. And An, An laughed uh, at the fact that the Vietnamese had this golden opportunity at the end of the war, a golden opportunity uh, to reshape your society in the way the Viet Minh had dreamed of. Again, so people, you know, I'm often asked, was he a hardcore communist? Absolutely not. Uh, he, was a he was a communist by obligation, but he was a Vietnamese patriot uh, in his heart and his mind. He never really forgot that. So what did that mean? That just meant that the Vietnamese would be free to determine their own future and On's view of that future was not what happened at the end of the war. Right. When Vietnam became an economic basket case, there was no food, no lights, no electricity. You look at what happened, the deprivation of Vietnam from 1975 to 1983, 1984, before economic liberalization. And you see the dark, dark ages of Vietnam. Mm. It was a horrible place to be. And An was under house arrest, not house detention. Is, the word you, that they use during this time. Of course, he felt he felt it was a wasted revolution, a lost revolution. Mm -hmm. And then when things changed, meaning that you know Vietnam liberalized, it, you know on on went back and he continued to work for the party. But he, you know what he did? He traded. Very interesting what happened. So on became one of the top and most reliable agents for Vietnam to understand Chinese motives and and intentions in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. Of course, the tension between Vietnam and China 
is today you know, really great, and it's been great for decades. Mm-hmm. But so Onward Reed in these intelligence reports sent to him from, by Hanoi and analyzed them just as he did during the war for the during the war when he would analyze these other these documents that were provided by the Americans and by the South Vietnamese. But he made it he made a deal that he agreed that he would do that if the Vietnamese allowed his first son, whose name is An Pham, to go to America and study. What I'm going to tell everyone right now is one of the most, if you think every, some other things I've said is unbelievable, this is even more unbelievable. So An uh, made a deal, and that deal was that Vietnam would allow his firstborn son, uh, An Pham, to come study in the United States because An wanted his children, especially his first son, to have all of the benefits of an American education that he had had because he wanted his son to, it's the next generation, to come back and change Vietnam. It was a beautiful vision that had. So An's, An's former journalists, again, this is all in my book, raised $30,000, $35,000 in private funding. This is before, you know, you had GoFundMe pages and things like that. <laughs> right. They raised all this money and An went to the University of North Carolina and then Duke University for his law degree. And majored in journalism like his father, and then he returns to Vietnam because the deal was he would come back to, to Vietnam. So he comes back to Vietnam and he becomes the top interpreter in the country. And so when President Bush went to Vietnam for a state visit, uh, came, excuse me, when, yes, when President Bush came to Vietnam for a state visit and when the president of Vietnam came back to the United States, the main interpreter for both of those was Young An, An Pham. Hmm. So here you have the firstborn son of the most heralded spy in the war is in the White House in the United States with President Bush serving as his translator and, and, and translating for both sides and the same in the United States. Most people just can't believe And the photos of this are just phenomenal. And anyway, really, it's an extraordinary story of, of multi, multiple lives. It certainly is. What a guy. What a character. Um, I'm very happy that you were able to spend so much time with him, get to know him, earn his trust and get to tell this story for an audience. Because he's, of course, he's very well known in Vietnam, as I understand it. But, you know, hardly anyone here other than, you know, serious historians probably is familiar with him at all. Uh, You know, that's 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 true. And hopefully hopefully when my movie comes out, people will will gain a lot more. Actually, it's not my movie. You know, when you you option a movie, but. You know, and trying to tell his story in, in an hour and a half, we're just in the end of, I'm a creative advisor on, on this project. So it's really been interesting to me to work with, you know, people who are just a totally different medium. I never thought as a professor, I'd ever be, you know, working with screenwriters, being asked questions by mm-hmm. screenwriters and directors and, and producers. But how do you even take my book and redu- what, what part of my book do you want it to still into a 90 minute film, which is about the attention span. We know this is not going to be like Oppenheimer where you're there for three right. hours. Although right. it would be, I guess if we won an Oscar, we'd make it three hours. But in mm-hmm. this case, the goal is to have a, you know, a 90, 90 minutes or something like that. And so hopefully people will learn a lot, lot more, more about him. And what is interesting is that, again, he was the only, so in Vietnam, he is really known as, as a great hero and a role model. And the role model is, and I, I think this is really important for people to think about. So, He's a role model, not because he was a spy. He was a role model because he, he, he could have stayed in the United States and he came home. So, and he also achieved both of the goals that he had in life. One was to defeat the Americans, get them out of his country, and then be a leader in reconciliation. And he was both of those. Mm-hmm. And in today's Vietnam, where 
80% of the country was born after the war. It's such a young country where so many young people view the United States in such admiration and want to come study here and live here. All of this, I mean, this is, I mean, here or, or go to Australia or go to Britain. I mean, that is the goal, I mean, of so many of these young Vietnamese. An represented the very best of Vietnamese society in this respect. That is, he loved his country. He was a Vietnamese patriot. Now, you know, one of the, re you know, being a patriot meant that he had to kill Americans. Yeah, so this is hard for Americans to really grapple with. It's one of the reasons I had to wait so long. Making films about Vietnam right after the war, the only thing that worked is Rambo. You know, we, do we go back and win this time, right? Yeah, or, yeah. Or, but not not a film like this, right? So for young people in particular, he's a real, a real uh, role model. And again, there are two really great examples of this. I show the story, I tell the story in my in my book, which I think your listeners uh, might, you know, it might, it might shine a light on uh, even better what I'm trying to say. So the very first, again, there was the war and the war, the war was terrible, but then there was the peace. And eventually the Americans are back, you know, today in Vietnam, Sheridan, Hilton, you know, it's just an unrecognizable country. I mean, McDonald's, you know, the, you know, basically Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's and Burger King have more outlets there than in my, in my city, you know, in my, mm. in my state. So in many ways, you know, America finally won the war because we're <laughs> going to, but, you know, we didn't have to do what we did. But, but the very first American ship to return to Vietnam was the USS Vandegrift. It was a really big thing. And the ship comes into harbor, and of course, all the VIPs are out, and the U.S. Consul General, General is Emma Yamaguchi. And she invites An, Pham Soon An, the spy, to be her special guest on the ship, along with his son, Young An. And they meet the captain of the ship, whose name is Captain Rogers, right? And they're on a standing there, and a Vietnamese colonel comes over and says, excuse me, are you Pham Sunan? And An said, yeah. And the guy said, uh, well, you know, you're hanging around. Which side of the war were you on? <laughs> An looked at him and said, with a straight face, both sides. And the guy didn't know what to say. And then An broke into laughter. And he goes, just kidding. Don't worry. I was on your side. <laughs> and so then... Then on said to Emma Yamaguchi and to Captain Rogers, and it's in my book, he said, you see, they still don't know who I really am. And I think that really is true. And then the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, Ray Burkhardt, at that time, he was leaving Vietnam and it was a big reception for him. And on was invited and on couldn't go because he had been bit very severely by his pet falcon. He had, you know, he had all these birds and oh, dogs yeah. and everything. And he, and he was pretty injured. His arm was, he had a lot of stitches and he couldn't attend. And Ray, the ambassador, Ray Burkhart, told me the story personally and then, you know, had it confirmed, obviously, but, you know, there was no reason that Ray wouldn't tell it the way it happened, was that on, Ray wouldn't leave Vietnam without seeing on. So he had his driver after the party bring him uh, to on's house where he could say goodbye to on and thank him for his work on reconciliation, for all he did to heal the wounds of war between hmm. two countries. So, you know, when you think about on, I mean, it's important to realize there was the war and there was the peace, and it took a long time for us to understand this. And that's really why today he is viewed in Vietnam as a real hero, even though he's buried in a military, in a military cemetery, which he didn't want. And he's surrounded by the three symbols of his life, a fish, because a fish does not speak a dog because a dog is forever loyal no matter whatever happens to you, your dog will stay loyal and a bird 
at a bird, and this is the most significant. He wrote about it in the barnacle, his ed final editorial for the Orange Coast College, the newspaper in Orange Coast College. He wrote, because birds are free to fly. And he always dreamed of flying back to California uh, to be with uh, his friends. So, mm. but it's a it's it's a it's a story of many layers. So I don't know if I've told it as as well as I can, but it is a story of many layers. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I I read many many books, you know, on on many many spy profiles in the past. And there's really nobody else out there quite like on truthfully from everything that I've seen and read and and understand at this point. I I've not come across anyone like him before. Yeah, well, yes. And, you know, there's a lot of wild, you know, we live in an age today of conspiracy theories. So like the conspiracy theories are on, are about honor that he could never have survived so long unless he was being protected. And he was either being protected by the American CIA, the British, or the French. Like one of those three secret agencies had to be hmm. protecting him. Ahn told me that all three of those had approached him to offer him jobs, but that and he went to his superiors, and his superiors told them him not to accept them, but that he was not, you know, a double agent or a triple agent. And to date, I did a freedom of information search in American records, and nothing ever came up like that. Hmm. So I, I feel like there are no secret files that would reveal that. But you know, there are these conspiracy theories. And again, I one thing I've learned is when you write about spies is, uh, you know, don't say never. The next generation of historians or writers. Eventually, Ahn's papers will all be released uh, when, when I'm long gone, and it, it, I'm, I'm not even sure how it could be, as I said, 100 years before mm -hmm. some of that stuff's out, but it will eventually be out, and we'll know the full truth truth about all this. Yeah, that's – I wonder what will come out. I wonder what more twists there are. I'm sure there's a few more to his story at this point. I mean, such a complex character. Well, you know, his life as a, as a spy is a shining example of the ambiguity in human intelligence. Totally both in the way that it, it affects war, but also how it affects personal relationships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so many, those friendships and the way he valued his friendships. And you could see it, you know, when I went back and I interviewed his uh, college roommates, and you have to realize these college roommates, they knew on when they were 19, 20. And now they're, they were in their late 70s and 80s when I, when I interviewed them. But they all had saved, you know, so much material on, on but they all spoke with such affection for him. And, Everyone wanted to go back and, and, and go see him. And again, you have those reporters. So it, it, there is something about his character that endeared him to people in a way that ordinarily you don't find. And and, and when you find it in a, in, in a spy, it's even more uh, un, un, unusual, uh, unusual. He didn't like being called a spy uh, either. He always preferred the term that he was an intelligent agent, an intelligence agent. And he modeled himself after a guy by the name of Sherman Kent, a strategic analyst. So he said, always refer to me as a strategic analyst. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, his strategic analyst work led to being a successful spy. And as my publisher said, when I came up with the title of my book, we can't call him a perfect strategic analyst. <laughs> yeah. No one will read this book. It doesn't quite so, roll off uh, the tongue. No, it doesn't. It doesn't roll off the tongue at all. So. Hmm. Anyway, so Larry, you've you've mentioned the movie a couple of times. Are you able to give us a status update on that? Is it still under wraps? I mean, are you able to talk about it? Well, there's if I if I could talk about it, I would, but not because it's under wraps. We're in the critical stage of script development right now, 
And so we're still about two years. We're, 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 production's supposed to start in about seven months. And the script development part is very, very dicey right now because we want this film, it's for worldwide distribution, but we want to show it in Vietnam where we want to, we want to, we want to film large parts of it in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. But even today, any external film, not just mine, any film must undergo a review by, by the official powers. And, you know, we, we think it'll be, we'll think, we think it'll be fine, but there's a process that, that we want to go through there. And if we don't like it, then we'll just take it somewhere else. But the the whole authenticity, the, the authentic nature of this would be, to film in Vietnam, a large portion of it, and the other portion in California. So right now the script calls for filming. This is really hard work for us to go to Southern California and, and go to Newport Beach and, and the like, but uh, someone has to do the hard work. <laughs> so right now though, that's all I really, there's really no more to say than that. that uh, we're, we're, there's been several iterations of the concept of this character development and what will be the pivotal arc in the movie. So. What will be the arc of Khan's character? Where will the tension be? And how will the audience relate to this in a way that they can... How will an American audience is a good example. So I'm not worried so much about how a Swiss or a British audience might react, but how will an American audience, how can they be made to be sympathetic to the situation that he was in, even though what he did led to, led to the deaths of so many Americans? This is sort of how you tell that story. And I, I shouldn't say more about it because we're still grappling with that. But, you know, my hope is that people, that they will write a script. I'm not a script writer. So far, I think they have that will allow the, the audience to empathize with his situation and then make their own judgments at the end. If what would they have done if they were in his shoes? So that's the key. Mm -hmm. What would they in a film? I think what would they do if they were in An's shoes? What would they have done? And if we can succeed in that, I think we have a chance to make a significant film. Okay, well, fingers crossed for that, then. That sounds very, very exciting. So I'm definitely going to follow the development any way that I can over the next couple of years. Great. Sounds great. All right. Well, so, Larry, do you have a, this has been an incredible talk, and do you have a, like a public social media or anything like that that you want to share, a website, maybe if people want to follow along as well? Yeah, I do have my own personal website, and it has a section on the film, too, and that's it's LarryBerman.net. So I think okay. it's HTTP, colon, back to, but it's LarryBerman.net. Okay. I think that's that's the best way to follow me. And my email's on there too. People can feel free to email me. I mean, you can email me at lsberman, B-E-R-M-A-N, at ucdavis.edu. I'm really happy to answer any questions or take questions or, or comments and like. And the webpage, I think, has my does have my, my contact information. Mm -hmm. That's uh, how I found well. you, yeah. Yeah, that's how we got in touch yeah. in the first place. Great. Well, I'm really glad that you found me because I've really enjoyed this as well. Good. It's a great, great. I've listened to the links you sent me and you've got a great show and I'm going to become a new, I am a new fan. So oh, I'm well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. For those well, of you who want to look for it, it's Perfect Spy by Larry Berman. It's out available right now. It's really fascinating. You can get it on Kindle. That's how I read it. I think there's hardcovers available as well. Strongly encourage you to read this book. There's, there really is nobody else out there quite like on, I have to admit. Yeah, I should say also it's in paperback, which is now, uh, so you can get it on Amazon in paperback. And also the Vietnamese version of this book, I know we're trying to wrap up, but there are, if anyone in your audience wants to see the Vietnamese version of the book, there are actually two Vietnamese but the versions of it. 
The first one is I wouldn't recommend, but the second one is the number one selling nonfiction history book in Vietnam. It's called X6. It's got a whole so much new material that I added to uh, the book that that if I have an opportunity to update Perfect Spy, I would. But I wrote a new preface with my 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 thoughts about reflecting on on at ten years later and. There's a letter from his wife to Nan, which she writes that reading my book brought her husband closer to him, to her. There's also a lot of other new interview material, and that's in, in, in Vietnamese. It's called X6. It's published in Vietnam, but it's still widely used. I, I was speaking on it in Vietnam and had several book signings on it just a month ago when I was there. Good. So, you know, again, it's, it's widely available. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, I believe that we have had some podcast downloads in Vietnam. So hopefully somebody that's there right now will hear this episode and go out and look for that immediately. Well, great. Although some things I said here may get me banned. That's okay. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, it's, uh, no, that's all right. I've got my card stamped. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. On that. No, this is really, really enjoyable for me. It's great to talk about this subject and when I listen to the podcast, I'll see whether or not I was intelligible or unintelligible, but I'm, I'm a good objective person to, to judge myself. Thank you. Great. Well, <laughs> I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think the listeners will as well, Larry. So thank you so much. And I'm definitely going to keep up with the uh, development of the film as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.